Good morning, church. If you stayed up uh, last night to watch the Penn State-Ohio State game, you may be somewhat sleep-deprived. Uh, feel free to snuggle back a little bit and shut your eyes. Um, you'll not, not offend me at all. In fact, I've been uh, wrestling with a wicked cough this whole week. Right now, I am full of caffeine and cough syrup, which is kind of a dangerous combination. But um, hopefully, I'll get through the, the message today. You know, a lot of us are looking for a life change. I remember in college visiting in a dorm room with a, a friend, and he had on his desk there, he had a Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, copies of Watchtower magazine, the Quran, uh, a biography of Karl Marx, uh, ex- a yoga exercises, and then a book that he really, really needed called How to Stop Worrying. You ever heard of adaptogens? It's this new combination of herbs that you've never heard of that are supposed to help you deal with life, help you deal with anxiety and stress. In fact, there's a new exercise um, out there now. It's called the CLASS, and it's supposed to help you. It, it develops both the mind and, and the body. And then there's this new product out. I'm not recommending you try it. It's called CBC. It's made for marijuana, and that's supposed to also help you deal with anxiety. And, you know, sometimes I wonder if we won't eat anything, uh, believe anything, or do anything if we think it will help us uh, through a life change. Well, we've been making our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. In the first 11 chapters, uh, Paul has been doing some pretty deep theological uh, reflections. And the end of chapter 11, he, he finishes talking about God's mercy, even when we mess up uh, his plan for our life, and, and he gets so excited, he just breaks into this doxology of praise, which brings us to chapter 12. And we begin to see a shift in, in tone and in the theme. The, the first word uh, is the clue that there's going to be a change, and that word is therefore. And Paul moves away from from theological concerns, and he, he moves into giving advice to you and me on, on, on how uh, to live as Christian men and women. And here's how he begins. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So Paul says, because of the mercies of God that I have just written about, here's what I want you to do. First thing, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. God says, bring your bodies, and I'll use them just the way they are. Now, that's hard for a lot of us. I've discovered that most of us are unhappy about some part of our body, right? We wish our hair was straighter or curlier. We wish that we were taller or shorter. We wish that we were thinner or heavier. We wish that our our knees didn't knock or that we weren't bald or or whatever it is to be changed, we think, in order to be successful. In fact, this has spawned an entire industry that is now offering to make our bodies look better. Uh, Pastor Sue Lee right now is in Korea. And she says that in in South Korea that there's an expectation that, that sometime in your 20s, everybody will get cosmetic surgery. It's an expectation. She says when she goes there, everybody knows that she lives in America because she hasn't had cosmetic surgery yet. (laughs) Seems kind of sad, doesn't it, that that's the expectation? But God says no. 
God says, you don't have to change your body. Just bring it. Think of yourself as an available instrument that I'm ready to use any time and any place. You see, this is one of the most important themes, I believe, in the Scriptures. That God says He's going to use you. He's going to use uh, the church. He's going to use you to change the world right where you are. You see, the authentic impact of the church is not what we do here Sunday morning. The authentic impact of the church it is when we're scattered after church into our neighborhoods, into our, our offices, or into our schools, and, and we discover that we can do ministry right there, that, that God is going to use you right where you are, and He's equipped you, and He's fitted you to do exactly that. Now notice how the apostle puts it. He, he says, bring your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now that sounds weird to our modern ears, but but the, the, the church in, 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 uh, in, that Paul was writing to in Rome, they would have known exactly, both converted pagans and Jews would have all known what a, a sacrifice was because they would have done it. They would have offered uh, dead animals as, as sacrifices to the God, to God or to the gods. Now, of course, back in then, you only offered them once and you could never offer that dead animal again. But Paul says, no, this is to be different. This is to be a living sacrifice and it's something that you can do every day. So every day we can start out with this idea, Lord, here I am, ready to be used. Whatever I do today in my normal business relationships or at home or with my children, with my neighbors or my friends, wherever I am, Lord, use me. I'm ready, I'm available, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. Now, a lot of us have the mistaken idea that we're to make ourselves holy, that we're to make ourselves pleasing to God, but we can't. This is a sad mistake. Nowhere does the Bible teach us that we can make ourselves holy. In fact, the entire first 11 chapters of Romans has been teaching us that God is already doing that, that God has made us holy because of Christ on the cross. Now, I confess that for years, I didn't like that word holy. Uh, To me, it conjured up a picture of of a stern uh, person who, who looked like they'd been drinking embalming fluid or something. You know, kind of sad people, grim people. But I've learned over the years that the word basically means another word very similar to it. In fact, they they have the same root meaning. That's the word whole, H-W-H-O-L-E. It comes from the same root. It's this idea in the original language that we are whole people. I mean, think about it. God is a whole being. Every part of God functions exactly as it's supposed to function. He's never anything less than perfectly balanced and absolutely capable of dealing with with whatever issue may come up. And the longing of this world and of this age, I think, is that we we long to be whole persons. And so God says to us today, I've taken care of that for you. You see, when you came to Christ, when you believed in Jesus at the core of your being, God started making you a whole person. And now the thing is, is for you and I to let God work that out in us each and every day. Bring your body, God says. Day by day, God will train you in holiness. God will train you to be whole. And he's ready to use us on that basis. You see, the amazing thing is, in this, is is that when you're changed, you change the world. When you are changed, then you change the world. Years ago, when I was a youth pastor here, a, a teenage boy came into my office, and we had a conversation. I don't remember the conversation, but a few years ago, I, I saw him again 
after some 30-some years, and, and he told me how at that conversation in my office that he made a decision to, to go in the ministry. Neither of us had any idea. I didn't know it. He didn't know it. But God knew it. And that's how the world begins to be changed. Chance encounters that you have each and every day at the office or, or at home or over a cup of coffee with somebody. Just a, a momentary chat with somebody in the office. A, a conversation in the back of your car as you're driving to work. It can be anywhere. And folks, this is God's game plan. To use you right where you are. And that's the way that he changes the world. When you offer your best to God, he uses you. Well, Paul's not done. In verse 2, he says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So first, Paul told us what we are to do to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now he's saying, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't, I don't want you to be squeezed into the world's mold. I don't want you to be squeezed into the world's way of doing things. You see, we live in a fallen world and we're broken people. And Paul is, is encouraging us to live differently than that, to live in this counterculture kind of way. But that's not even the most important thing that he says here in this verse. It's really only the introduction to the real thing. And the real thing is this. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, let God completely change your thinking. Let your way of looking at life be, be altered. Paul wants us to break the, the normal standards of, of behavior and, and do a 180 degree turnaround and be contrary to the way that everybody else thinks. Now, there's a lot of confusion on this verse because we preachers, I think, are responsible for it. We, we emphasize so much the first part, the negative thing. My guess is that, that a lot of us who grew up in Christian homes were, were given this long list of things that we were to never do, that we were to avoid. And so we grow up thinking that Christianity is, is a list of things that we should not do. And the implication is that if I don't do this list of things, then I'm going to be successful. I, I will not be conformed to the world. But through the years, I've discovered that, that many people who don't do these things are still very much conformed to the world. I don't know why the idea has taken such firm root in our minds that God is impressed somehow by the number of things that we don't do, but he's not. And neither is anybody else. You see, what God is after is the renewed mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's what impresses God. And there's only one instrument that helps us to do that, and that is the Word of God. To have a renewed mind, we need to be grounded in the Word of God, which reflects God's will. And so when we meditate daily upon God's Word, when we read it, when we understand it, when we memorize it, guess what happens? We begin to think God's thoughts, and we begin to look at people, and we begin to look at life differently than the way the world looks at it. You ever notice how much marketing is done uh, around this idea that, that, that we deserve it? You ever notice that? Everything, everything is sold on the basis that you deserve this, that you have it coming to you. That you're the kind of person who, who ought to be able to have these advantages. That you should have the best. That you can have it all. And over and over, we're, we're impressed with this philosophy that we deserve more than, than what we've got. That we deserve more than other people. 
But what happens when we begin to buy into that is that, is that we lose this whole idea of gratitude. In fact, it begins to foster ingratitude. Because, you see, you're never thankful for receiving something that you feel that you deserve. And a lot of people are angry because they didn't get as much as they, they thought they should have or as much as the next person or, or because they didn't get it sooner. But, of course, the truth is, is that we don't deserve anything. And when your thinking begins to be transformed by God, you believe what God says, that we are sometimes antagonistic to, to the program and plan of God, that we have wrecked the planet on which we live, and, and we've ruined the life of humankind, and we really don't deserve anything from God's hand. But what we get from God is mercy and grace. And when we begin to understand that, when we begin to think like God thinks, you begin to be grateful for everything that comes into your life. I mean, it's amazing how much gratitude can do to change your life. Every day we learn to be, to be grateful for everything that God gives. Now that's allowing your mind to be transformed. And I'll tell you, nothing will do it like the Word of God. And that's why we're continually encouraging you to study and to learn and to understand the Scriptures. Well, in verse 3, Paul begins to describe what this transformation will look like. And he hits a lot of topics, more than I can cover in one sermon. But I, I want to highlight, I want to cover three of these qualities that, that Paul um, talks about. And the first is humility. And this is what he writes, starting in verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul says, think with sober judgment. Paul doesn't want us to think too highly of ourselves but neither does he want us to underestimate ourselves. You see, humility in, in the first century Roman Empire was not one of the virtues. In fact, the word used meant acting like a slave, which no free person in Rome would ever aspire to. And so this idea of humility would have been pretty radical to, to Paul's readers. Paul says, don't think of yourself too highly, but, because that's pride, but but don't think of yourself too lowly either. He says we're to think with sober or sound judgment. In fact, the New Living Translation puts it this way. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. I like that. That's honest, sober evaluation. It's not based on what other people think of us. It's not even what we think of ourselves. It's based upon what God thinks of us in accordance with the faith that God has given to each of you. I love what Thomas Merton, a spiritual guide of the last century, said. He said, humility is being precisely the person you actually are before God. So humility isn't thinking poorly of yourself. It's not beating yourself up. It's not neglecting yourself or minimizing your worth. It's simply being honest with yourself and with others and God as to who you really are and what's really going on in your life. 
And the starting point for each and every one of us is, is that we are made in the image of God and that we are destined for eternal glory and, and that we are gifted to do something good and beautiful in this world. In fact, listen to how Merton completes his thought. He says this, And if you have the humility to be yourself, you'll not be like anybody else in the entire universe. Think how liberating that can be. When you know precisely who you are before God and in Christ, then you're free. You're you're free even to admit that you're a sinner. You're free to say, I'm sorry. You're free to, to, to stop having to manage other people's impressions of you. You're free to, from having to, to compete with everybody else's looks or, or everybody else's status or everybody else's gifted children or, or even their spirituality. You're free to do good without other people needing to notice. You're free to let others have their way. Even your husband and your wife, to let them have their own way. To, free to rejoice in somebody else's success or somebody else's good fortune. Because you know exactly who you are and that there's no one else like you in the whole universe. And folks, if that's not a basis for a healthy self-esteem, I don't know what is. So how do we get there? How do we get to humility? I mean, it's not like, you know, you can try harder to be humble. I mean, that would be kind of awkward. But Paul tells us how. In fact, we go back to verse 1 in in Romans again. and, And listen to what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Listen, he says, this is your true and proper worship. It's in worship that we learn our true place before God. That's where we move from pride to humility. It's based upon a proper understanding of and response to all the mercies of God. And it's in worship as we sing our, our, our great hymns and, and as we pray and as, as we worship and as we bow before God, our, our, our King, and we sing His praises that we remember who we are and that we are loved and secure in Christ. Humility. Well, Paul goes on, and he writes this. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. And be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And share with the Lord's people who are in need. And practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. You know, the the Greek word for hospitality is xenophilia. Xenophilia, the love of strangers. And you see it right from the very beginning in the law code of, of the Old Testament. Beginning in Exodus, God says to the people of Israel, you will not oppress a stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. And we find Jesus in, inviting himself into people's homes for dinner. And, and we hear him say in Matthew 25 that one of the marks of the faithful is this, that I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And not only does Paul mention it here in, in Romans 12, but in chapter 15 he writes, Welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. 
In 1 Timothy, hospitality is, is to be one of the traits of a bishop. In Hebrews, Christians are encouraged to practice hospitality because by so doing, they might find that they are entertaining, what? Angels. Back when I was in seminary, Melinda and I were traveling back to school to Lexington after spending Thanksgiving with my parents in Athens. And around Ironton, this big snowstorm began as we, as we traveled. And by the time we hit Grayson, Kentucky on 64, there was a, a number of inches on the ground. Suddenly the car in front of me put on their brakes and we slammed right into the back of them. I mean, everybody was okay, but my car was no longer drivable. So we called the, a tow truck, and he took us into Grayson, but all the motels were, were full of stranded motorists, and, and we had no money. This was back in the days when you didn't own credit cards, you know, unless you could afford to pay them off. So we didn't have any. So here we were. We were stuck, and we were in the, in the, the, uh, the mechanic's garage, and, and so we, we got out a, um, a phone book. And NOLA phone book was this um, paper thing. <clears throat> and inside it had the list of everybody's name and, and phone number. And, uh, and then they had these things called the yellow pages where you could find different churches and things, businesses. And so we looked down the yellow pages and we found the United Methodist Church and we gave them a call. We explained our situation, told them who we were. Of course, he had no idea. But he came and he got us. He took us home, gave us dinner, put us up for the night, sent us on our way the next day. We have never forgotten that pastor's hospitality to two strangers in a time of emergency. The thing is, the hospitality in the early church was not just to other Christians, to other believers. It was extended to everybody who was not in the church. In fact, it was considered the first step in evangelism to, to helping people on the road to God. That the church had this reputation of providing hospitality towards the poor and, to, and towards the powerless and those who were on the very fringes of society. And because of that, people were coming to faith in Christ because they saw the love of God in these people's lives. Hospitality. And then uh, Paul wraps it up. Verse 14, he, he deals with the issue of, of, of how we deal with hatred and conflict. And really, it sounds very much like Jesus' sermon on the mount. He says, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn, turn the other cheek. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. So Paul is, is recognizing a kind of vicious cycle that happens uh, with cursing and with anger. And he says, we're to break that vicious cycle, stop that cycle by, not, by choosing not to curse them, but to bless them. Verse 15, he goes on and says, and rejoice with those who rejoice, and, and mourn with those who mourn. Paul is encouraging us to have compassion, to, to understand where the other person is coming from, their, where they hurt, where their pain is, where their rejoicing is. And he goes on, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, listen, live at peace with everyone. 
And then he finishes up. He says, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to revenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And then he completes his, his thoughts with this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So Paul is endeavoring to to work at the very source of this anger and conflict. Sometimes sparing wrath, he says, because a person may be starved. They may be starved emotionally, but but starved for a different kind of food that we can offer them and a different kind of drink. So he says, give it to them, feed them what they need. And then he quotes from the book of Proverbs. He says this, In doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. Now, he doesn't mean fire that's going to burn them, it's going to harm them. He's talking about fire that will break through their hardened shells, that will warm them and give them hope. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, in this chapter, Paul is showing us what a changed life can look like. It's not about the newest form of exercise. It's not about the newest kind of philosophy. It's not about the newest kind of drug. That's very simple, that we, put, we humbly put others ahead of us, that we welcome the stranger into our life, and that we counteract hate with love. Paul gives us this marvelous strategy for relationships and reconciliation. You know, we're having so many debates right now in our culture. And there are so many issues before us. And I believe that we as Christians, that we need to play a part. I want to urge you to weigh into these conflicts, but in such a way, in a countercultural sort of way, in a way that you become this model that Paul is talking about of grace and mercy. Some years ago, Melinda and I uh, saw the production of Victor Hugo's masterpiece, Les Miserables, in which Hugo works with this whole idea of law and grace. And the novel opens with a, a young man whose name is Jean Valjean, and he's been in unjustly imprisoned for seven years for this small little offense, and he leaves prison with, with rage in his soul, and his anger that builds and it builds and it builds, and until one night he goes to the home of, of Father Welcome, who is a, a bishop, a monsignor of the church, and the bishop gives him a meal, and he invites this fugitive to spend the night. And while everybody else is sleeping, Jean sees some silver candlesticks and, and silver utensils, and he steals the utensils, and he, he goes out into the street, but the police catch him, and they, they recognize what he has done. They bring him back to the bishop's home. And when the bishop sees this young man with this silverware, he, he sees something deeper than anybody else has been able to see in this young man. And, and the bishop says a surprising thing. He tells the police that, no, he didn't steal those things. I, I gave those to him. And then he asks Jean why he did not take the candlesticks as well. And, and the young man is absolutely flabbergasted at the mercy and grace of this bishop. And after the police leave, the bishop walked up to him, and he said in a low voice, never forget that you have promised to me to employ this money in becoming an honest man. And he does. Jean becomes a force for good because of the mercy that he has been shown. And that's how lives are changed. 
God's mercy. It starts up here, folks, with the renewal of our minds. And then God begins to use us each and every day, wherever we are, to show grace and mercy to those in our lives that are needing it. Let's pray. God, you have shown us mercy. Help us to show mercy to others. Come, Holy Spirit, and renew us and change us. Remind us that we're made, created in your image, and that you love us. That you also have a a plan, God, in this universe, and we're part of that plan, and you want to use us to touch the lives of others. We pray that that grace and mercy would ooze out of every pore of our body. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.